Amen. Let us pray. Father, we come to you this morning. Uh, first of all, thanking you for the privilege to partake of the Lord's table. We thank you for Christ's giving of his body on that tree, as we sang uh, a few minutes ago, shedding his blood, paying the penalty as our substitute for our sins. We thank you, Lord, for the work of Christ in providing a way for us to be saved from your wrath, saved from the power of sin, saved from certain judgment and condemnation. We thank you, Lord, that through the blood of Christ, our sins have been forgiven. That is man's greatest quest is to have his sins atoned for. And Father, we thank you that through Christ that work has been done. And Lord, that is why you call us to repent and believe the gospel, believe in Jesus Christ and the work that he performed on our behalf that we might be saved. Fathers, we pray this morning we look to our brothers and sisters in Christ in Afghanistan. I've been listening to uh, reports of the persecuted church over in that country, especially with the fall of Afghanistan into the hands of uh, the Taliban. And Lord, we pray this morning for our brothers and sisters in Christ as we preached a few weeks ago on the doctrine of adoption. That when we're adopted into the family, all Christians belong to the same family. So as we're praying for believers around the world, we're praying for our own family members. And so Lord, we pray for the church in Afghanistan who are in hiding because they're not free to worship you as they should, as we are here in America, that we uh, so take for granted. So, Lord, we're, we're praying that you may save uh, their persecutors. We pray, Lord, that uh, as they're persecuting the believers, that the believers may witness the gospel to them. And that they may be converted and saved from a false religion. We had one brother who was praying, asking for prayers for physical protection and provision. We pray that the sovereign God would physically protect our brothers and sisters over there. Lord, we plead with you to restrain evil and to confuse the plans of the evildoers over there. Lord, we pray for their physical provision. For financial issues because... No one can take money from the bank and the ATMs are all empty. So, Lord, they don't have a way to, to have money to, to buy things, to buy uh, the basic necessities to sustain them. Lord, we pray for visas for them to get out of the country so that they may leave uh, if it is your will to do so. Lord, as all believers, we have access to the throne of grace. Your word tells us to come boldly as believers to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and help in time of need. Lord, wicked and deceitful mouths have opened up against believers everywhere, speaking against you, lying about you and your, your person and your character. Lord, we also pray for their spiritual provision. 
that you strengthen them in their faith. That they will stay strong in the Lord who is the sovereign king. That their faith does not fail. Increase their faith, Lord. Increase the faith of our brothers and sisters in the Afghan church. Strengthen them. Fortify them in their faith. As Paul wrote in Romans 15 and 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. May they be strengthened with all power according to your glorious might. Colossians 1 and 11. And Lord, we lastly pray for them that the gospel may advance, that there may be a revival over there, that the truth of Christianity may spread throughout that nation. And Lord, wouldn't it be like you to work in these horrible circumstances to make your great name known? Lord, we think about Acts 12. We think about the book of Acts where Peter was jailed and, and sentenced to be beheaded by Herod. But Lord, you miraculously, the saints were praying for Peter while he was in prison, and you miraculously released him. And he came and knocked at the door of those who were praying for him, and they were astonished that it was him because they knew that his death was certain. Lord, may we pray for these saints over there in Afghanistan and the church in all nations where Christianity is forbidden, places like China and North Korea and in some parts of Eastern Europe and in, and in Russia and in, and in India and in some African countries. Lord, we, we pray that the gospel still proliferates even under those circumstances. Lord, there's nothing too hard for you, as Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 32 and 27. Nothing is too hard for you. Nothing is too difficult for you. So, Lord, we pray that you may hear this prayer and the prayers of all the saints who are praying for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan and in other persecuted nations, that you may hear their cries, hear their pleadings, and answer them according to your good, sovereign, and perfect will. And, Father, as we preach the word this morning on the glorification of the saints, our final state of salvation. Lord, may you use this word to encourage the saints that there is a better day for those who believe in Christ. And that is the day that we will receive glorified bodies. We won't have to deal with sickness or illness or disease or pestilence or famine or anything anymore that can hurt and damage our bodies. No pains and arthritis and all these other things that ail us, Lord. We, we know that one day it will not be so. As we persevere to the end, we know that this life is not it. So, Lord, as we preach these truths, may you reveal them to us by your spirit. And, Father, may you fill me with your spirit to preach this text well, to do justice to your name and to your glory and to your word. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Amen, let us turn to the book of Romans, 8th chapter. 
This is one of the great chapters in all of scripture, one of the more popular chapters. We're going to read verses 18 through 30 as a, a proper starting point. We're concluding our sermon series on the doctrine of salvation. And we're going to take a break from preaching our doctrine series for the next few months. We'll come back to it later on this year when we talk about the doctrine of Christ and then the doctrine of the church and the doctrine of last things. Uh, beginning next week, we're going to uh, go back into the Old Testament and we're going to uh, prayerfully preach through the book of Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther. Uh, we're going to go through those books. I did a sermon series on those books, I think about six or seven years ago, but I've learned some new things since then and grown in the word. So we're going to begin next week in the book of Ezra. So if you'd like to read ahead, uh, you can go ahead and read Ezra, the first chapter, and read and pray through that. We'll be, I think Ezra has 10 chapters uh, that I can't remember. So we'll do a chapter a Sunday, each Lord's Day. And so uh, we'll begin that next week, and then we'll go through the book of Nehemiah and then the book of Esther, our uh, church doctrine uh, series, looking at the doctrine of Christ. So this morning, we're going to talk about the glorious doctrine of glorification. And this is the final hope for the believer. The future hope of the believer is our glorification. So Paul says here in Romans 8, beginning at verse 18. And just listen as he speaks of his hope in the future of all saints. The hope in his words of our glorification, our final redemption. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time, think about the times that we're living in. Think about the news every time you turn it on. Think about social media, everything you see on there. The times that we're living. Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. He is speaking of the resurrection of the body and the subsequent Christ-likeness uh, that the believer will experience in eternal glory. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. We talked about this before about how when the fall of man happened in Genesis 3 that not only was man corrupted but all of creation was corrupted and then we always have to remind ourselves of this. That's why we have storms and natural disasters and all these things. It is because even creation was affected by the fall. So even creation is waiting for what? The new heavens and the new earth, the new glorification of creation where we will return essentially back to Eden. He continues, for we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pains together until now. Not only that, but we believers also have the first fruits of the spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption the redemption of our body. I don't know about you, but sometimes 
I'm just ready to go home to be with the Lord. And that is that should be the hard cry of every believer. Lord, come quickly. Lord, I'm ready to to go home. We still live this life. Uh, we still love, honor, and serve God in this life. We still seek to love our neighbor. We still seek to be stewards over our time, talent, and our treasure. But deep down in our hearts, we long, we're eagerly waiting for the final adoption, the final redemption of our own bodies, especially those of us who have to deal with sickness and disease and, and ailments and aches and pains. You know, we're, we're, we're longing for that day where our bodies will be glorified. And that's what Paul is speaking of here. He says, for we were saved in this hope. But hope that is not seen is not hopeful. What does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with what? Perseverance. We talked about that last week, the perseverance of the saints. We know that is there. If it's something that you see, then it's not hope. But we have this hope in Christ that we are going to be glorified. And that is what perseveres us. That is what encourages us. That is what spurs us on. Then he says the spirit also helps us in our infirmities, in our weaknesses. For we do not always know what we should pray for as we ought. But the spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Sometimes we're so grieved that we don't have words. But know that the spirit of God who resides in every believer is interceding for us on our behalf. That is one of the roles of the third person of the Trinity to intercede for us. Always praying for us even when we don't have the words. The Holy Spirit of God who resides in us is praying for us. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the spirit is. He's speaking of God. Because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God. To those who are the called, the elect, according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined. To be conformed to the image of his son. That he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover whom he predestined. He also called. That's the doctrine of election. Whom he called. These also he justified. We talked about justification a few weeks ago. And whom he justified. These he also glorified. That is. In, in essence, the process of salvation, the final process of our salvation is our glorification. So you see, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. It is a certainty. It is already done that we are glorified. Bruce Demers in his book, The Cross and Salvation, calls glorification the indescribable bliss of future glory and that is the hope of the Christian our hope should not be to have our best life here on this earth our hope should be for the future glorification the day that we 
will see Christ as he is. And that we will be glorified. Our hope should not be on this, but it should be up there. That's where it should be. And the application of our salvation is accomplished at our glorification. It is the final accomplishment of God's work of salvation in us. And scriptures make the grand claim that true believers in Christ one day beyond history will share fully in the divine glory that humans lost after the fall. So our glorification is in essence a restoration of the way that we were pre-fall, the way that we were before Adam had sinned. It is a return to Eden, so to speak. J.I. Packer in his book, Concise Theology, said this about glorification. He said, glorification is the scriptural name for God's completion of what he began when he regenerated us, namely our moral and spiritual reconstruction, so as to be perfectly and permanently conformed to Christ. He says, glorification is a work of transforming power whereby God finally turns us into sinless creatures in deathless bodies. So when we're glorified, we'll become sinless. I often quote what John MacArthur said, the greatest thing about heaven is that there will be no sin. We won't have to deal with sin because sin brings on the effects of everything else. Why do we have sickness? Because of sin. Why do we have death? Because of sin. Why do we have aches and pains in parts of our body that we didn't even know existed? <laughs> because of sin. Why do we deal with, with health issues and have to take medicine and prescriptions for them? Because of sin. Why do we have hurricanes and tornadoes that kill dozens of people every time? Because of sin. Why do we have governments that rise and, and fall and governments that, that persecute uh, Christians because of sin? So with sin absent, we won't see any of that. We see the effects of the fall everywhere. But the great thing about glorification is there is no more sin. Yes, there won't be tears. There won't be sorrow. Why? Because there will be no sin. Because sin brings what? It brings tears. Sin brings sorrow. Sin brings grief. Sin brings sadness. Sin doesn't bring joy and hope. Sin brings the opposite of that. So when we're glorified, we will be sinless creatures. And we will have deathless bodies. That means we will not die. And you know, it's sad that here in our earth, on our earth, that we have people who are trying to live as long as they can. There's nothing wrong with preserving your life. I'm not talking about that. You have people who are very rich. They live in, they sleep in cryogenic uh, chambers that cost tens of thousands of dollars to try to tap into that myth called the fountain of youth, which there's no such thing. The very first day from the first day that we come out of our mother's womb, we begin the dying process. 
Death begins the day that we're born. And all of us are appointed a day to die. Scripture tells us that there's appointed unto every man wants to die and after that judgment. We will die. That is a consequence of the fall because before that man was supposed to live forever. But when we're glorified we're going to have deathless bodies. There's going to be no death. We can't imagine that in our fallen world. But that is going to be the case. John Frame said in his book Salvation Belongs to the Lord. He says like most of God's blessings there's a beginning in this life and a consummation at the end and already but not yet as theologians would say. We are glorified but we will be ultimately glorified. We have eternal life now but we will ultimately have eternal life. That's the what theologians call the already and the not yet. We're already glorified but we will be glorified when we die. We have eternal life now. He who believes in Jesus has eternal life. But we will inherit eternal life when we go to be with the Lord. And theologians have uh, looked at the thread of scripture and broken it down to four things that happen. You have the creation. And then you have the fall. And then you have redemption. And then you have consummation. Consummation is where the final glorification of the saints takes place and the return of Christ to reign takes place where Christ comes and consummates his kingdom. And believers, we receive our final consummation. Right now, we are in this stage of redemption where God is redeeming man unto himself. So we're in the cons. We're in the redemption part and the consummation will come later. Our glorification will be a consummation of human nature in God's image. As God had intended it before the fall. And to be honest, we can't now imagine how wonderful it will be. Why? Because we're so tainted with sin that even those thoughts would be sinful. We don't know how wonderful it will be. We don't know how wonderful we will be. But we know that it's going to happen. A glorious hope. So let's look at our principles here. The main one we're going to look at is our future glory. Our future glory. There are many scriptures that teach of the believer's hope of future glory. Psalm 73 and 24 says, you will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. This was the psalmist saying that thousands of years ago. Paul said in Romans 5 and 2. The first verse says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Second Thessalonians 2 and 14. 
Paul says, to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The crown of glory is the symbol of the final perfecting in Christ. And all who are in Christ will receive that crown. First Peter 5 and 4 says, And the chief shepherd, when he appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. I don't know about you, but I can't wait to get my crown. And it's a crown that won't fade away. I got some old trophies at the house from, I think, 1984 and 1985 when I played uh, Little League Baseball. And <laughs> those trophies have tainted. I'm like, why do I even still have these? I need to just throw them away anyway because what are our children going to do with them? They're not going to keep them. They're going to have an estate sale. And, and you know, they're not going to be worth anything because they're, they're fading away. They are. They're, they're like just tattered. I don't know what they made them uh, out of. That was, what, 37 years ago? Um, but they're still there. They're, you can barely see the little placard with my name on it, MVP and all that stuff. Yes, I was an MVP at one time in my younger days. Uh, but the trophy is fading away. Pictures do what they fade away. But that crown of glory that we're going to receive, guess what? It can't be tainted. It's like Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 6 about laying up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and dust cannot corrupt and thieves cannot break in to steal. Think about glorification that way. Bruce Damaris says this in his book about this glorification. He says, glorification concerns the final event in the salvation of true believers that begin in eternity past with God's elective decision. It is the fitting conclusion to our spiritual journey in which God's glory is becoming progressively revealed. Our spiritual struggles will not go on forever. Let that encourage you, saints. Our spiritual struggles will not go on forever. Our pilgrimage will issue in a marvelous consummation in which the remnants of the old self are eradicated. Eradicated means just wiped away, just done away with. Aren't y'all glad about that? And the new self is perfectly realized. Glorification is the bringing to a triumphant conclusion our redemption in Christ. I hope that encourages you all just thinking about that. The things that we struggle with spiritually, we won't struggle with anymore. When we're glorified. I don't know about you, but that encourages me. In the New Testament, glorification means the riches of Christ's glorious inheritance. Paul says this in Ephesians 1 and 18. In his prayer to the Ephesian church, he says, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? We inherit the glory that Christ has. We inherit the place where he is. 
did he say to his disciples? Where I am, there you will be also. I'm going to do what? Prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may be there too. We're going to share in that glorious inheritance that we have in Christ. Satan, let that encourage you. Paul said in Philippians 3 and 20, our citizenship is where? In heaven. He says it here, Philippians 3 and 20, for our citizenship is in heaven. He talked about that in contrast to those who set their minds on earthly things, on worldly things, on the, the affairs and the cares of this world. He talked about those who are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. He says in, in contrast to those people, in contrast to those who, who hate God, who hate God, who refuse to worship and bow down to God, who refuse to believe in Christ unto salvation. They set their minds on earthly things. All they're concerned about is earthly and worldly pursuits. But Paul tells us as believers, our citizenship is in heaven. We are sojourners. We're passing through people. This earth is not our home. I always say this. This world is the best that it gets for unbelievers. Whatever they acquire, whatever they attain, whatever fame they have in this world is the best that it will get for them. This world is the best it gets for unbelievers. But for the saint, our glorification is the best that it gets. Yes, we do strive to uh, you know, live a certain lifestyle here on this earth. There's, there's nothing inherently sinful about that. About wanting to, you know, have a nice home. You know, have a nice checking account, whatever the case may be. Have investments, have a nice retirement. It is nothing inherently sinful about those things. But that is not where our heart should be. Jesus said again, back to Matthew 6, lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and dust does corrupt and thieves can break in and steal we're to be stewards over what God has given us over our time over our treasure things that God has given us God has given us as Paul said in first uh, Timothy 6 God has given us all things richly to enjoy we are to enjoy the things of this earth they're God's gifts to us but we must not live as the unbelievers in thinking that, wow, this is the best life ever. Because it's not. It's not. The glories of glorification are nothing on this earth can compare to it. Nothing. And that is what Paul is telling the Philippians. Our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to this. 
who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. That's verse 21. He's going to transform our lowly body into his glorious body. That's not going to happen while we're here on this earth. It's going to happen when our final redemption is consummated, when we're glorified. And Paul says in uh, 4 and 1, Therefore, having said this, my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and my crown, so stand fast in the Lord. Since our citizenship is in heaven, stand fast in the Lord. Since we're going to receive glorified bodies, conform to the body of Christ, stand fast in the Lord. Christian, Stand fast in the Lord. Persevere. Persevere. So that when we see him, he will say unto us, enter into the joy of the Lord. Amen. Glorification also means the promised crown of life. James 1 and 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved or tried, he shall receive the crown of life. Which the Lord has promised to those who love him. God has promised that crown of life. To all his believers. Praise the Lord for that. He, he promised us that crown. And guess what? Whatever God promises. He's going to fulfill. Glorification is also. The welcoming into Christ's Eternal kingdom. Second Peter 1 and 11. I begin at verse 10. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's going to be a glorious entrance. Into this kingdom. Praise the Lord for that. So in some glorification signifies the full inheritance of the kingdom of God. It will be ours also. Next principle are the phases of glorification. Glorification does happen in phases or, you know, for a lesser term, stages. But these are the phases of glorification. And in doing this, we will debunk some false teachings that have been out there or what Christians falsely believe about what happens when a person dies. And, you know, I always say 
I was talking with a friend of mine the other day, a pastor who was uh, about to do a funeral, and he made the good point, and I agreed with him. He said, sometimes the worst Christian theology comes out at funerals or when someone dies. Sometimes, and I, th- I, th- I shared that with, uh, with friends, said sometimes the worst theology comes out when Christians talk about death. And hopefully when we look at these phases, we will uh, look at what the scripture says, not about what popular culture says or, or wisdom of people who are not of God, uh, but what scripture says about glorification. So the first phase occurs at the believer's death. The soul or the spirit, same thing. The spirit departs from our sin cursed body to enter Christ's immediate presence in glory. So as soon as a believer dies, their spirit goes to be before Christ. One biblical example is the thief on the cross, Luke 23 and 43. Jesus said to him, you know, the thief said, Lord, memory when you come into your kingdom. And Christ said to him, oh, surely I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. He didn't say when he comes back. He said today when Stephen was being stoned after his great sermon. Stephen cried out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. You didn't say receive my body, said receive my spirit. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5 and 8. He says, we are confident, yes, well pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So the death of the Christian is not an end, but a beginning of a far better existence in the world to come. Now what do you not see. In the biblical account. You don't see. Where a person's spirit. Dwells on earth. And haunts people. Ghosts. There's no. Biblical justification for ghosts. People's spirits don't roam the earth. Those who are in Christ, their spirits go immediately before him. Those who are not in Christ, their spirits go to hell to wait on the resurrection to be judged, to be sent back to hell. No spirit roams the earth and hunts people in closets or in dreams or paranormal activity or any other type of Hollywood creation. And it's sad to say that that's where a lot of people get their theology about death. They get the movies. Or they talk to their 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 um, mother's ghost or their father's ghost or their sibling visited them in this you know all, all these heretical teachings. It's not biblical and it's it gets into uh, necromancing and all these other 
uh, occultic practices. Try to conjure up the dead, like movies like The Conjuring and, and all these other supernatural movies that have people thinking that you heard a bump in the night or you heard some, something that seemed like footsteps in your house and it must be, ghosts have footsteps first of all, but anyway, they're not even in a body. You know, just, just it, it reasonably, how can a spirit have like footsteps, like have weight to them? I'm just, just you know, let's, but anyway, the point is, this debunks the myth that there are such things as ghosts. It's unbiblical. It is unbiblical. When people die, when believers die, their spirits go immediately before the Lord. And unbelievers, they go immediately into hell. We go into the immediate. And, and that's a comfort for us as believers. When someone dies in the Lord, we know that right then, at that instant, the great transfer happens. Their spirits go right before the Lord. They immediately in his presence. That, that's an encourage, encourage us who had, uh, you know, who lost loved ones who, were in the Lord, that they're with Christ. Number two is glorification proper, and that is where the resurrection of the saints transformed bodies re, uh, have a, uh, reun- I'm sorry, a reunion with their spirits. And this occurs at Christ's second coming. Titus 2 and 13 looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is what happens with our bodies. They wait for that appearing when he comes. And again, I just read uh, Philippians 3, 20 and 21. But I'll read it again. We eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies that it may be conformed to his glorious body. And we read in Romans 8 and 23 earlier. We who have the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Our soul has been already redeemed. We're waiting for the redemption of our bodies. Bruce DeMere says this in. His book about this. He says it is the complete and final glorification of the whole person. When in the integrity of body and spirit, the people of God will be conformed to the image of risen, exalted and glorified redeemer. When the very body of their humiliation will be conformed to Christ's glory. So first our spirits go to be with the Lord and then when Christ comes back. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians the 4th chapter that the dead in Christ will rise first. The dead in Christ will rise first. So our bodies will go to be with our spirits and they will be, these will be glorified bodies. And we can't imagine how that looks for saints that died 2,000 years ago. 
their bodies are going to be glorified. They're going to receive new bodies. So that's the second phase. The third phase is that believers will be finally vindicated before the judgment seat of Christ. Paul says this in First Thess- uh, Corinthians 3, verses 12 through 15. And, and this is where Paul answers the question, okay, everyone is going to go before the judgment seat of God, but I've said this before, and this Paul fleshes this out even more. Believers will not be judged for their sins because we've been justified. We, we have no sin in a real spiritual sense. Our sins have been expiated, you know, taken off of us, have been put on Christ. We have Christ's righteousness imputed to us. Unbelievers will be judged for their sins. We'll be judged for our works. And Paul talks about this here in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 12 through 15. We will be vindicated. Paul says, now if anyone builds on a foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones, wood, hay, a stubble. So you see two types of works. You have works that can take the fire and works that will be burned up in the fire of judgment. So gold, silver, and precious stones are, are those works that can stand the, the heat of fire, the heat of judgment. And then you have the wood, hay, and straw, or stubble. Those are the works that will be consumed, that were, in, in essence, uh, worthless. But Paul says, he continues in verse 13. Believers, he's not talking about unbelievers. He says, each one's work will become clear for the day. He says that capital D, that's the day of Christ, will declare it. Because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work, not sins. The fire will test each one's work. Who are the each ones? Who is Paul writing to? The saints at Corinth. So he's speaking to believers. Our works will be judged by fire. And the fire will test each one's work what sort it is. So is the work going to be the gold, silver, and precious stones? Or is the work going to be the wood, hay, and straw? If anyone's work which he has built on endures, he will receive a reward. So those who have works that are worthy, they will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. So even those believers whose works are not worthy, they will still be saved. They just won't receive that reward, but they will still be saved. Our works will be judged, not our sins. But that would be our vindication, the fact that we will still be saved from judgment, from the fire of judgment and condemnation. So our glorification is where we will be vindicated before the judgment seat of Christ. He won't say to us, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. He won't say that to his elect He would say to us, enter in. 
well done, good and faithful servant. And Brewster Mayer says this about our final vindication. Again, he says, at that time, each will receive his praise from God. He was uh, uh, quoting Paul. He says, glory will flood the believer's soul when she or he hears the Lord Jesus Christ say, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. In one way or another, Christ will reward the faithful service of the justified for loving labors performed in the body. Jesus' words, be faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life, concern the uh, eschatological end times reward meted out to faithful saints. So God is going to reward all the faithful saints. That is where we're going to be vindicated. So all the work that you're doing in the name of the Lord. What did Paul tell us? I, I quote this verse a lot. First Corinthians 10 and 31. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to who? The glory of God. It's not, it's not just, Paul's just not talking about religious things like doing things in church. Although those things matter. Our work goes far beyond religious or churchy things. How do we... Um, how do we serve the Lord to glorify God in our work, our physical work, on our jobs, in school, in the classroom, in the home, as a husband or a wife or a mother or a father or a parent or a, or a child or a grandparent or, or in a relationship? How do we do those things in a way that brings glory to God so that when God sees us at that judgment seat, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Are we faithfully serving the Lord in every area of our life? We can't do the uh, thing that the reformers fought against and that is dividing the sacred from the secular. There's no such thing as a sacred and secular divide. That is an anti-biblical concept. All of life is worship. Not just the religious things. We worship God as an employee or as an employer. We worship God as a child or as a parent. We worship God as a husband or as a wife. All of life is worship. All of us are worshiping God in what we do every single living moment. So are we faithfully serving God in everything we do with all that is within us? Loving the Lord our God with our heart with all of our mind and with all of our strength and loving our neighbor as ourself. Are we doing that? We're not going to do it perfectly, but are we doing it faithfully? That's what matters. And that's what we're going to because of that. Believers, we don't have to fear judgment on that day. Unbelievers are the ones their judgment and the last phase is our entry as in spirits into heaven and we find this in the last two chapters of Holy Scripture Revelation 21 verse 1 says now I saw a new heaven 
and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more sorrow, nor crying. There should be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne, this is Christ, said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. This is our hope. This is their final stage. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give her the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But... Look what will happen to the wicked, those who rejected Christ, those who were not in Christ when they died. The cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, those who practice witchcraft and divination and communication with the dead and, and all this other stuff that I talked about earlier. Idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So they're going to die twice. And then he talked about the New Jerusalem, and then the glory of the New Jerusalem, and then the river of life in verse 22. All this to say that this is the final phase of our glorification, that we will enter into that new city that new Jerusalem and it will be finally glorified it will be complete that is what I look forward to saints that is where our hope should lie in our final glorification not when we get to a funeral and people try to pray us into heaven. It's too late then. The preacher tries to preach the deceased into heaven. And I'll say this also. This is another uh, thing I want to mention earlier. Looking at uh, the first phase where our, our spirits go to heaven. Uh, as I said, a lot of bad theology comes out at funerals. <laughs> we don't become angels we don't gain our wings 
They're already angels in heaven. Heaven didn't gain another angel. I know it's a song that says that. I've heard it played some funerals before and it's kind of cringy because it's unbiblical. Heaven didn't need another angel. Your little angel didn't become an angel. We do not become angels when we go to heaven. Angels are already there. They're created beings. No one gained their wings. Why do people believe these things? I, I think it's rooted in sen- sentimentality. There's, you know, it's, it's very sentimental to think on that. But it's a false hope. It's a false hope. <clears throat> because it's not based in truth. What did Christ tell John? That this is true and faithful. Write these words, for these words are true and faithful. What does scripture say? Not what does pop culture say or what do your emotions say or what do the movies say? But what does the Bible say about it? And if the Bible is silent on it, guess what? We should be silent on it. We shouldn't isogete into the passage, putting something in there that's not there, as a lot of people do. We only draw out what scripture says. That's exegesis. That's what we do. We exposit the text so people don't gain wings or become angels or any of those things when they pass away. So I want to put that in there. All right, let's look at our implications here right quick as we get ready to close. Right theology is important. There are three implications here. One is certainty. One is certainty. The reality of our heavenly glory should motivate us. To be certain of our relationship to Jesus Christ. Those who do not know Christ must understand that their eternal destiny is based on decisions made in this life. It matters whether a person believes in Christ or not. Think about the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25. Five had their oil and five did not. The five who did not, they tried to come in, but the answer was no. The other virgins came saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. That is going to be the unbeliever. So we as believers should have certainty of our relationship with Christ. With that assurance of salvation that we have, that we are the elect of God, that we have been chosen by God. We don't want to be like the five foolish virgins. And of course, the parable of the talents we talked about. Second, we should be stimulated to live holy lives. The writer said in Hebrews 10 and 25, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. We talked about that earlier with the importance of public worship, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another so much the more as you see the day approaching. We stimulate other believers to persevere, stimulate 
each other to live holy lives. We encourage each other to do that. Peter says in 2 Peter 3 and 10, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all things will be dissolved, saints, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Because of which the heavens will be dissolved being on fire and elements will melt with fervent heat. So Peter saying in light of the fact that this earth will pass away. Live holy. Be in holy conduct and godliness. Pursue godliness. We don't want to be like those who say, well, this earth is just going to burn up anyway because of climate change. We might as well just eat, drink for tomorrow. We will die as the Epicureans uh, thought. Eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. That's not the believer's cry. The believer's cry is to, to live holy, to be godly. Even while all this is going to happen. And number three, fortify. Fortify means to strengthen. The hope of future glory should strengthen believers to face the end of all things with confidence. We need not despair, as do those who have no hope. We're not to despair like our believers do. Who should be... Who should be despairing the most now with all this going on in our nation, in our world? It should not be us. We should not despair. We have hope. We have a hope that the world doesn't have. We don't grieve as the world does. Listen to what Paul says when he's talking about the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 42 through 44. He says, so, is, so also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There's a natural body. And there's a spiritual body. The spiritual body will be the one that we will inherit. So some takeaways from this series. First, we talked about that salvation is of the Lord, that it belongs to God alone. It is God alone who saves. It is God who takes spiritually dead people and gives them. We cannot do it ourselves. We have the total inability to save that. And because salvation is of the Lord, it is God who elects those to salvation. He sovereignly chooses those whom will believe. And as he elects us, he regenerates us. He, he gives us a new, a new nature, a new heart, new inclinations, new desires, new thoughts, a new will to serve him. 
And as we're regenerated, we're justified. We receive the righteousness of Christ on us. Our sin record is wiped clean. It is as if we never sinned. It is a judicial act that is done outside of us. It is something that God does. We can't do anything to make ourselves right before God. That is a work of God through Christ. Something we must always remember. We ourselves can't get right with God. Next we have adoption that we talked about. Where all that God saves becomes part of his family. Not every person who was born is a child of God. All of those who have received Christ by faith become children of God. As 1 John 3 says, Behold what manner of love is this, that we shall be called children of God. We are adopted. Just as I was praying for Christians in Afghanistan, all of us have the same father. All Christians everywhere have the same heavenly father. We are all brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't have to go to the same church. We don't have to live in the same country or the same continent or the same hemisphere. It does not matter. We are brothers and sisters with Christians everywhere. That's why when we see Christians being persecuted, we should pray for them. If you notice, and I thought about this, this is not a uniquely American thing and it's sad. When most Christians, when you see are here of Christians around the world being persecuted. What is the first thing they ask for? Prayer. They don't ask for things. Y'all may not notice that, but I do. When, when you hear, like the Christians, I've been reading reports of Christians in Afghanistan, the, the very first thing they ask for is prayer. Because they know that prayer is effective. They know that we are praying to a sovereign holy God who hears the prayers of his people. They, ask, they don't ask for things. They don't send us money, send us things. No, they ask for prayer. They realize the efficacy or the effectiveness of prayer. We don't do that here in America, unfortunately. But that should be our default position. That helps to fortify our faith in despair. We do what? We pray. When we see others in despair, we do what? We pray for them. Because prayer is effective. And then we talked about sanctification. How God, we're uh, saints. Positionally, we are saints. We may not feel like it. We may not act like it at times. But that doesn't change the fact that God has, has called us out. And also we progress in sanctification. We mature in our walk with God. And then last week we talked about the doctrine of eternal security or the perseverance of the saints. That God not only saves us, but he sees us through. Christ says, I have lost none that the Father has given me. And no one can take us out of God's hand. That Peter said that we are kept by the power of God. That true Christians, true believers, persevere until the end. And then today we talked about glorification, which is the great hope of all believers. May we be encouraged by this past series that we looked at, and may we be encouraged by the fact that one day, saints, we'll be glorified. We will see Christ face to face. 
We won't have to deal with sin or sorrow. That should encourage us. When we go to work and it's hard, you're dealing with evil supervisors, godless people like I do. Think about one day. I don't have to deal with that anymore. One day, sin won't be a problem. It won't be my malady. Those of us who have achy, my almost 50-year-old knees are beginning to betray me. I'm not as quick as I used to be just five years ago. You know, I'm a little slower getting up out of the bed now. Young people, you'll feel it, you'll feel it after a while. Give it, give it about 20, 30 years. You know, those knees, your, you know, your aches and pains, your medicines that you take, you look in your cabinet and get to the point where you got to have a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, uh, thing, you know, you see all that. And, and man, just think one day, one day, I think about my father, you know, he, he passed eight and a half years ago. You know, he was very, very sick when he died, very sick. You know, he was confined to a wheelchair for the last maybe 10 years of his life. He had a Hoyer lift in his room with a hospital bed. He had to have a nurse to, you know, do everything for him. He still had his, his, his mind, you know, he, he was in the Lord, but he, he suffered a lot physically. He, didn't, he never told me a lot of it, but he was always in pain. He was on 34 different prescriptions, you know, at the time of his death. Not all of them, you know, they had to take every day, but just different ones. You know, he, had, he was on dialysis, he was diabetic, you know, he had, uh, he was a double amputee, so he had to take, you know, pills for that. And, you know, he just had so many different medications. But the day that he passed, the morning of April 23rd, his soul went to be with the Lord. And he's waiting for his body when Christ comes back. It won't be an amputated leg, body, and ravaged with all the pain and sickness. He'll receive the glorified body. And when I was preaching at his funeral, that's first, that's what, what I preached about. That he's going to receive that body. He's going to be perfected in Christ. And that is the hope of all of us as believers. And that should have our hearts filled with joy to always, friends, look to heaven. Always look to heaven. Always look to our final glorification. Paul tells us, set our minds on things above, not on things of this earth. That means, I mean, neglect the things of this earth, but your affections, your hopes should not be for this world. But it should be for that final day where we will be glorified. Amen. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this glorious doctrine. We think about glorification. Many of us are probably thinking about our loved ones who have died in the Lord. And right now, Lord, we are assured by scripture that right now they are before you. They're before your presence right now. And Lord, that gives us great hope and encouragement. Lord, we don't, we don't grieve as the world does. The, the world has no hope in this world. They may act like they do. They may pretend like they do on social media. But Lord, they, they, they don't have any hope. But Lord, we as believers, our hope is beyond this fallen world, this, this sinful world, this world full of, full of pain and misery and sin. 
Lord, help us as believers to live each life, each day rather, to your glory. To not set our affections on things on this earth, but on things above where Christ is, as Paul says, seated at the right hand of God. Lord, thank you that all of what we have read is true. As Jesus told John, write these down for they, these words are true and faithful. Lord, we can believe it because they're true because you said it. Your word says it and that settles it. Thank you, Lord, for persevering us through these last few months of looking at some precious doctrines and we're going to look at some more later on this year early next year lord we need to go back and listen to some of these sermons sermons to receive encouragement or to share with other believers to encourage them may we do so but lord until we meet again on wednesday night in the next lord's day may your spirit encourage us May we be strengthened to persevere in the faith, persevere in our walk, to persevere to the end. And Lord, as we go each day, may we pursue your glory, work to your glory, so that in that day when we stand before your judgment seat to be judged for our works, you will say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.